Hi, everyone. My name is Mark Vina, and welcome to the Smart Tech Check podcast, where we cover all tech topics that are smart home, home automation, security, and console gaming related. Today is Tuesday, June 1st, 2021. Our post-Memorial Day podcast. I hope all of you had an enjoyable holiday weekend. Lots and lots of interesting consumer tech topics to talk about despite the holiday. So with any further, uh, without any further ado, let me bring on three journalists, many of you know quite well, the three troubadours of tech reporting. Uh, Rob Pegarero, who writes for USA Today, Fast Company, and Wirecutter. Uh, John Quain, who happens to be in a car driving around Vermont. He'll provide us with more details on what location. He's in a parking lot somewhere in Vermont. Um, and uh, you know, John writes is a frequent uh, contributor for the New York Times and Digital Trends. And Stuart Walpin, who opines for Twice and Laptop Magazine and happens to be my favorite baseball historian. <laughs> Stuart, I'm forewarning you, no comments about the Yankees and their losing streak. You know, he actually did submit that as a topic you wanted to talk about, but I, my producer rejected that. So how are you doing? How was your weekend? Don't answer me. <laughs> <laughs> Spent a lot of time indoors, thanks to Crummy, but did get, get out for a bike ride yesterday and uh, got to see a little bit of Arlington Cemetery, since that is in my neighborhood, a perk of living in the nation in and around the nation's capital. Right. Rob, I, I don't want to talk about this because this topic gross me, grosses me out, but do you see a lot of these bugs? They're all over. Yes, the cicadas, you're lucky I don't have the window open, otherwise you would hear this sort of extraterrestrial racket. We are now a good two weeks into our uh, occupation by the cicadas, which basically is every 17 years, these bugs emerge by the billions and their whole evolutionary strategy is to emerge in such number predators get an upset tummy from eating too many bugs, which allows them to then get on with making little baby cicadas that will then emerge from the ground in 2038. You have been warned. Well, I have to well, tell you, you know, uh, Rob uh, Walt Mossberg, who I think all of you know, is obsessed with the topic. All he does is he posts either post something negative about the Yankees, which he does quite frequently, and and he'll do something about the, he'll he's got lots and lots of images he likes to post about the cicadas, and and you know, like I said last week, um, Rob, in all deference to the people who live in the District of Columbia, I can't think of a better place for insects insects to um, to breed, but that's another podcast. So, <laughs> Anyway, we've got lots to talk about here. Uh, let's chat. Yeah. Let's talk about the first topic. And uh, this is your topic, uh, John. But uh, JBS, one of the largest meat suppliers in the U.S., Canada, and Australia, gets hacked. You know, and that. Um, you know, I, I'm going to. I'm going to. Uh, uh, I guess I'm going to. Uh, you know, uh, if you remember, who, who was the guy that wrote the Muckraker in the, in the during the 20s? Was it Sinclair Lewis? Sinclair Lewis, yes. Yeah, I, yeah. I pull that one right out of left field. Do you consider yourself the Sinclair Lewis to kind of expose this topic? That we have? <laughs> yes. You know, it, it also bothered me because I spent part of the weekend writing about, uh, you know, computer security and uh, PCI compliance, which is the uh, standard that was imposed or that they formed in 2006 for credit cards because so much money was being lost in credit card fraud. And the card brands are on the hook for that money. Well, you know, we already had the, the gas pipeline hacked and shut down for half of the uh, eastern seaboard supply almost. And now the food supply, like even if you're a vegan, 
you got to know that this is kind of a problem because this company supplies uh, the pork and beef for a, a large percentage. The United States does has facilities in Canada and Australia, as you said, um, and they're not saying exactly what happened, which is another problem with this. You know, are their facilities shut down? They're not saying. And uh, this is very, very scary, you know, especially after the um, the pipeline incident uh, a couple of weeks ago, which we're now just coming out of after the, they paid the, the five million dollars ransom in Bitcoin. Uh, yeah. the, you know, the, it begs the question, and I'd love to get Stuart's opinion and Rob's opinion on this. Are, are the feds going to have to intervene at some point? And I think the answer is probably yes, in terms of mandating, you know, minimum legislation that, you know, requires you know, if you're being part of the infrastructure, whether it's food, energy, healthcare, you call it's it's a it would be a very very comprehensively long list. Does the government have to come in and say, you know what, you have to have standards in terms of what your cybersecurity looks like? Not to say that they, they would, that would not have been, you know, circumvented by these hackers. But uh, Stuart, what's your thoughts on that? Angle? Well, they've already done that. They did that, I think, last week or the week before for the pipeline. They've heard for the first time they the did pipeline. impose Homeland Security did impose some sort of security ba- uh, 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 security reg- regulations on on at least a minimum set. Now, I think on the meat business, I believe that this was primarily in Australia. Now, they haven't said whether or not this has impacted anything outside of Australia. Um, and they, you know, Australia does export a lot of the meat that they do there, but I don't think it's hit anything in the U.S. I haven't heard that it's hit anything in the U.S., but on a much broader scale, two things to understand. One, the crooks are always going to be ahead of these companies. That's been the truth forever. I've spoken to a half a dozen security people, and they all say the same thing, that it is almost a total reactive situation where the crooks come up with something and then you have to fix something. So even if the government does come in and impose a certain amount of base level regulation, as you said, the, the evildoers um, are always going to find a way to get out of it. Now, from what I understand, JBS did have a backup system that the pipeline people did not have. So they, um, I, from what I understand, that the, the JBS will be able to correct the issue far faster because they maintain a hardy backup system. Um, so what, what those baseline sort of protections that the government is going to impose, as we well know, government and technology don't exactly get along either. So the government might impose something, but who even knows that that's going to be anywhere near effective. So this is going to just get a lot worse before mm. it gets better. No, it's going to get a lot messier. And uh, to your point, Stuart, I'm always concerned about, you know, the government has been historically way behind the curveball. On, on technology and implementing the right standards. And, you know, can you, not to get into a long discussion about this, but I don't have a lot of faith uh, because whatever they impose, the, the bad guys will find a way to get around it, you know, and you go into this perpetuous, per, perpetual cycle of, well, what, what have you solved? But of course- a little, I mean, yes and no. I mean, this is, these aren't very sophisticated attacks. Remember that these are not really sophisticated users of this, hacking um, software and it's come, become a modular kind of business. I think what you need to do is look at what happened with credit cards. So what happened with credit cards was the companies themselves were responsible for all that fraud. I was hacked myself and somebody charged $75,000 worth of material on my card. 
Wow. And I didn't pay, I didn't pay anything. Right. And so the credit card companies went, wait, this is not good. The law was that they were responsible for it. So that's where you put that legislation in and you force them to do something about it. And they did. They now have this PCI compliance. If you work with any credit card companies, store any customer information, transmit any customer information, it has to be encrypted. It has to be secure. It has to meet all these very, very, very specific technical requirements. And that's all enforced by Amex, Discover, Visa. And if you don't do it, they fine you, right? Even as a merchant, you get fined or they won't let you handle their cards anymore. So you need to do something like that. If you make these companies financially responsible for it, if that company started paying so much money every hour that they were offline, I think they'd fix it pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, but John, John, the only thing I would throw the, throw, you know, um, respond to in that argument is that um, when when you say things, uh, when the argument is, well, the consumer in your situation, you didn't pay for that that error. Believe right. me, someone's going to pay for it. I mean, if it happens enough, you would think the company would respond with, "Hey, we don't want to pay these kind of um, uh, settlements to get you know, to keep the the consumer, or in this case, a business, kind of protected uh, from that activity." But someone pays for it. It's not. There's no free lunch, unless of right. Course, but that's what. But that's why they installed these standards. That's why they came up with these technical standards themselves, because they were fed up with paying for it. And, and that's what you just have to do with these other companies. You know, um, there's only so much you can pass along to the consumer. Right. And uh, they want to make money. They can pay. <laughs> well, let, let, I want to get Sinclair Lewis Jr. Uh, Jr.'s opinion into this. So, uh, please. Uh, that's, <laughs> uh, that's a compliment, by the way. I have great respect for Sinclair Lewis. So, yeah, basically what uh, what JQ said, you need to find some way, you know, the problem we've had with data breaches in the past, if I assume all of us had the privilege of getting Equifaxed, right? Did Equifax <laughs> have any real amount of money? Did they suffer any pain? Have we gotten compensated yeah. for it? No. And no. it's different in the realm of financial security where because the credit card issuer has to make good on fraud, it is in their direct and obvious financial interest to crack down on it. And right now we don't have that situation, certainly not with data breaches and identity theft. Uh, and here, I don't know, cases like ransomware are sort of harder to figure out because, yes, obviously it should be in your interest as a company to not have your systems taken offline by some two-bit ransom operator hunched over a keyboard in St. Petersburg, Russia. Uh, but it keeps happening. And, and then you have this case where companies like Colonial Pipeline was not exactly a model of transparency yes. and saying, right. hey, this happened and here's how it happens. You can make these changes so it won't happen to you, which is the opposite. You know, the feds have been able to have an effective safety regulation regime in transportation because airlines can't be like, Yes, the 737 augured into a cornfield, but we're not going to talk about how that happened right now. You, you don't get away right. with that. Right. Yeah, this is, you know, I think, uh, John, you said it, or Stuart, you said it. This is going to be, um, unfortunately, a song and dance we're going to hear repeatedly for the remainder of the year, if not going into, ne into next year, because this is very problematic. This is very And of course, the bigger problem is that this is part of a bigger problem, which is the the russian basis of this could very well be state sponsored which adds a whole new dimension 
to the issue. And the problem with a lot of these, the issues that we're going to continue to confront as they begin to expand is it's going to not only a technical issue, but a diplomatic issue. And not only identifying who the culprits are, culprits are, but whether or not this is state sponsored enough, which enlarges the entire issue. Maybe not say well, state sponsored, but certainly state tolerated. That seems that's correct. State tolerated. Right. Exactly. Right. No, I, 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 I had a bunch of panels about this at the RSA security conference two weeks ago. And one point, you know, everyone was mad and, and nobody had a great solution because as tempting as it is, we probably should not, in fact, drone strike the guy hunched over a keyboard in St. Petersburg. Bad things <laughs> could happen if we do that. So what do you do? I don't know. And that's wow. uh, why I'm glad I don't have to make policy and solve this problem for everyone. <laughs> There's an, there's an upcoming summit between two big leaders, you know, one in Russia and one over here. And you'd like to think that this topic is going to come up. And, uh, you know, again, I, I, you know, I, again, I wouldn't go so far to say it's state sponsored, you know, and I think you were careful, Rob, pointing that out. But certainly it's it, there is a kind of a look the other way, I think, attitude that uh, at the end of the day, it's just as dangerous, you know, and uh, maybe it's the Russian version of plausible deniability, who knows, but uh, certainly that's a big topic that's gonna come up. Let's hit our second topic here. And that is the ongoing Roku, Google, YouTube. And it's been, it's just, yeah, <laughs> yeah put, the, put, put, the, put the gloves on. And this has been going yeah. on for some time. And, um, you know, my, this is a topic, Stuart, you wanted to tee up, but you know, my my initial thoughts on this, this is one of the reasons why uh, consumers, um, you know, they, I mean, they, they've been embracing cord cutting in big ways over the last, you know, several years. I mean, all the, all the research uh, shows that. But if you are looking, if you're depending on YouTube, you know, for daily content, and there's a lot of people that are, and if you use either a Roku standalone device or increasingly the uh, Roku has a very um, impressive line of partners in the TV business like TCL, um, it becomes very problematic. I mean, the last thing you want to find out is, guess what? I can't get to YouTube uh, because guess what? They're having a bit of a spat. But Stuart, let's get to your thoughts on this because this is an important topic and uh, it's something that keeps coming up over and over again, not just specific to YouTube, but in that whole cord cutting equation where people find out, hey, I signed up for a service and someone has a spot and all of a sudden I can't get to the content. So let's talk a little bit about that and get your view. Well, uh, I think a lot of this is a balance of power issue. Um, uh, in addition to it, both sides are making all sorts of claims that each one of the other ones is denying. Uh, Roku is claiming that Google is trying to uh, force Roku to include technology such as chips that support AV1, that would, which is a, a royalty-free codec, that would boost the price of the Roku streamers, that would be on par to the Google stream, and Roku is accusing Google of all sorts of things. I think a lot of it really, this reminds me so much of the cable carriage issues, you know, where cable system and and a, and a program provider you know a channel wants more money for their channel to be on cable system this is simply an extension of that fight only much more technical involved but a lot of it is a balance of power issue and i think the what roku is feeling like a little bit of a david and goliath where Google can get along without having YouTube TV on Roku, but I don't know that Roku can survive without YouTube TV being on it. I mean, that's going to cut off a lot of people. So right now, if the last I heard was that Google has put, they've, 
Roku is taken off the Roku TV app, the YouTube TV app. Yes. And so what Google has done is taken the YouTube TV link and put it into the YouTube app, which is still on Roku. Right. And now Roku is screaming about that. So uh, nobody wins. Every, it's one of those everybody wins. Nobody every, nobody wins. Everybody no, loses. Exactly. You know, and the one thing I would add to what you were saying, Stuart, is – and again, this is a bit esoteric, but when you go out and buy a TCL TV and it's got uh, Roku functionality built into it, and I love my TCL TV. I think it's one of the best TVs on the market, frankly, for, especially for the for the dollar. Yep. One of the, the the gripes, not gripes, but one of the risks you play when you, when you buy a, a smart TV with this built into it, if, <clears throat> if all of a sudden a company like Google comes along and says, guess what, Roku? You know, we want it. We want a, a higher performance Kodak in the TV, and, and guess what? Now you've got millions of TVs out there that may not that are not upgradable by definition. And guess what? Guess you may be out of luck. And even though you have a smart TV, you got to upgrade it. And uh, I mean, with an external product, and that's not that's very messy. So this is, this is well. Plus the other the, the other issue is, of course, is that Google is selling its own TV platform. Right, Android TV. So there's that piece that's added into this. Yes, yeah, that that that's why you go. The word antitrust really comes to fore here. You're crossing markets, and you're using your dominance in one market to dominate another market, and that's classic antitrust. I mean, this is a serious problem um, that we have as consumers. You can't have the provider suddenly dictating to the quintessential over the top. We started the whole business, Roku, right? And uh, that that seems like a problem. I don't think YouTube TV is a big deal, though. I mean, I don't watch it. If it was Hulu, you know, if it was something like Netflix, then that would be a serious issue. But I don't think YouTube TV is making enough of a, an inroad, which is probably part of their problem. But there's still we Spectrum is a good example, too, where they're still bickering about it. I've got it on some of my devices because it's still loaded there. And they come on and say, please do not delete Spectrum or you'll never get it back. So, but they're still bickering too. Rob, your two cents. Yeah. yeah it, it's customers should not be in this position. Customers should not have to think like venture capitalists and, and game out the possible balance of power implications as, as if, you know, buying a TV has become this version of the board game risk <laughs> where you need right. to decide. <laughs> Roku is that they're in Kamchatka. They're well positioned to go on. Uh, no one has time for that nonsense. And, you know, we, we already had enough of it. The whole reason to cut the cord and go to streaming is to get out of these stupid retransmission fights right. that cable operators always get into with TV networks. Yes. You know, like every year with clockwork regularity. Yes. I mean, you know, the battles between Dish Networks and, and Fox and other providers, it becomes very problematic. And, you know, the days of, you know, um, say what you will, but you go back 25 years, you know, when cable was 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 the platform, um, you rarely have that problem. But over the last 15 years, I'll call it the last 10 years, it's been very problematic. And I think that if you're going to make a decision to cut the cord, and millions of people are, this is one of the ongoing frustration levels that say, you know what? I wish I, I pined for the old days when I didn't have that problem where guess what? I turn the TV on. I can't. Could you imagine back in 1985? Oh, I turned my TV on and I can't get the ABC news in New York channels. If it's still channel seven, is it channel, yeah, seven, channel seven? Yeah. Oh, my memory's oh, still good. good. You know? So anyway, 
very, very problematic, and we'll see how that, that uh, kind of pans out. Rob, this is your fun topic. Google, Google Photos. They now want it. They have yeah. the audacity. They want to charge more now if you go above the 15 gigabyte uh, storage limit. So let's talk about uh, you know the interesting um, take. Well, I'm sure it won't, be, it won't be interesting. I'm sure it'll be very very forceful <laughs> on your view on what Google's up to. So a couple of thoughts I have. Number one, like I don't mind per se that that they're charging for storage. You know, I did look through my notes from Google I.O. I think 2015 when they announced Google Photos and they said, you know, that this is not an Andriven product. We want you to be comfortable storing your photos here forever. That They didn't actually say, we'll give it to you free forever. And the rate they're talking about, uh, I think 100 gigs is buck ninety nine a month, but don't pay that. Pay the nineteen ninety nine annual rate. Um, that That's not crazy. And it's certainly in line with what you pay for added storage elsewhere, whether it's Microsoft OneDrive, um, Apple's iCloud. If you want to get a Flickr Pro account, that's considerably more, although you get other features with it. That's that's a separate kind of app and social network. Uh, on the other hand, the way Google's implemented it, the tools they've given you, the, if, if you go to the website, not the Google Photos app you might have in your iPhone or Android phone, you'll have options. It'll offer to show you blurry pictures, but they're, their automated filter for that is not that good. And I would have thought Google would be good at that. Uh, what you really want is, you know, for the, the Google cloud brain to tell you, yeah, okay, so, you know, you took 10 pictures of this the smartphone at this trade show. Remember going to trade shows, guys? Um, none of them suck. Keep this one. Get rid of the others. Uh, and, you know, make you a better photographer in that way. And it doesn't do that. It's not well set up to show duplicate photos. Um, the other thing I've realized though, in looking at this, so much of the quota I have, I have a 17 gig quota, which I think I remember at some point Google offered two gigs of extra storage. If you took some like cybersecurity quiz, a lot of it is my Gmail. And, and so basically this is Groupon's fault because of all the stupid messages they've sent me over the last 10 years, eating up my Gmail storage, uh, storage from uh, photos taken on my phone is uh, as big of a problem as just plain old Gmail. Right. It sounds expensive too. I mean, aren't they, you know, I think I just down, I just copied eight terabytes over to backup and that ter eight terabyte drive was like a hundred bucks. So to char start charging me a few dollars every month for a few gigabytes seems pretty exorbitant. And then to serve ads on top of it. And then to data mine every photo I have and say, oh, look at what JQ is doing. And look, he likes electric bicycles. And, uh, you know, it, well, it just seems like too much. They're actually very direct at I.O., their, their conference two weeks ago, I guess. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, we don't use data you store with us for advertising purposes. They, they said that very directly. Um, and in, in this case, since they are actually charging for storage space, th that is a known business model. I would actually rather have them do that than to say, you know, we are going to, we'll keep Google Photos free. But yeah, we'll monetize the, the fact that you have lots of pictures of electric bikes or, you know, the New York Mets or whatever, and then use that. Realistically, <laughs> they can get that info from other places. So I would just assume that them, they keep this separate from that. And, you know, yeah, it's 20 bucks a year, but this is also storage that's available anywhere you have an internet connection. 
Uh, it's backed up. They do good security. I don't think the, the value proposition is unreasonable. I do think they can improve on the tools they give you to manage the photos you have. Stuart, your thoughts? Well, I mean, they announced this in November. So this is, I'm not going to say this is old news, but there's been plenty of time for the market to absorb all this. They announced, like I said, in November, that they were going to bet June 1st was the day, number one. Number two, as far as I understand, what they're going to be charging for is only for new content. That, In other words, if you already have stuff stored there, they're not going to, in other words, if you already have, you know, 56 gigabytes of photos on there, they're not going to start charging you for 120 gigabytes, I should say. They're not going to start charging for that. They're, I believe if I understand the pricing structure is that people already have a Google Drive account or any Google storage account is that starting today, they will start charging you once you get past that for the new 100 gigabyte of data so i don't think so i don't think that that's as rob says i don't think that's unreasonable paying for storage i already pay apple a couple of bucks a month for whatever it is um so i don't have to worry about my phone filling up with videos and pictures um so i i i, I always believe that somebody was going to start charging this because it makes a perfect amount of sense. It's certainly a business model that even the least techie person can understand. We're giving you something to hold on to us. You pay us to hold on to it. I mean, that's easily understood. And I don't see how anybody would protest that. Now, whether or not the tools to get at your pictures, I've never found Google's tools to be that comfortable, number one. And two, Google says that they're not going to use it. Quite frankly, I trust them as far as I could throw the big mo. Right. Um, right. Yeah, yeah. But, but a buck 99 for anything that current st- current customers use that they add on here, I it's, it's hard for me to get upset about this. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to move to our last topic because we only have a few minutes left here, but I'm very, yeah. very skeptical of, of – uh, it's not so much the cost issue like you, Stuart, stated. I'm just concerned about, you know, Google having access to all my photos, and I just don't right. believe – I think they find ways of circumventing things, and they just – you know, they they justify it after the fact. I, I saw a piece – and I didn't I didn't read it very heavily, but it was a uh, it was an art. It was a, there was a story over the weekend that talked about the fact that um, Google is constantly looking at ways to publicly make statements that they protect people's privacy. But behind the scenes, they're always looking at ways, algorithms that that can circumvent. They can with a straight face say, well, yeah, we, we don't do this. We don't do that. We don't do this. But at the same time, they're able to get around it and with a straight face say, oh, yeah, we don't we don't do that. But in fact, they are doing that. So uh, that, that, so I, I don't know. I struggle with it. Not to say that Apple can't do that or others can't do it. But I, ha- you know, as much as, um, you know, Apple's starting to strain credulity with me because of their statements last week at the trial that they don't know how much money that their app that their app store makes. That that kind of just that's still blows. that's a different conversation. But that still blows me away. But uh, I'm call me a skeptic when it comes to. Um, yeah. Uh, to, uh, this uh, is uh, and politicians. Yes. Yeah. Uh, last thing we got we got to talk about because it's coming up uh, in about a week or so uh, is Apple's uh, WWDC 2021, the big worldwide developer forum. Uh, just very quickly, um, jo- John, any expectations you might have? I, I just wrote a story about it on Forbes, uh, talking about whether they're going to answer the big question about you know merging Mac OS and iOS. That seems to be the question that perennially comes up. Um, there'll be other obviously interesting things that will come out of it, but uh, have you given any thought about what you um, 
will come out of it, you think? Um, I, I, you know, I wonder if they'll match more of the things that Google was doing with uh, Fitbit and healthcare issues and integrating that even more. I mean, that's certainly uh, a hot area and lots of room for development and lots of room for improvement and a lot of research going on in that area right now. I would expect that they might make some announcements in, in that area. But you're right, I don't... Uh, if they merge those two, everybody's wanted that to happen, but I don't think we're going to hear that this time around. I'm so, they've, they've publicly made statements that they will never do that, although they do have they've done, t- taken baby steps, you know, right. that, that give you the feeling that they are they might do that. Um, I think there'll be some new announcements around Apple Silicon. You probably will see an M2 or talk about that because they really haven't addressed the pro market yet. And uh, certainly an M2 with more cores and, you know, uh, more addressable memory, et cetera, et cetera. That would be a logical thing for them to address. Stuart, you're nodding your head. What do you think that? Yeah, I, I fully expect I fully expect the second gen M uh, silicon to be announced or at least hinted at because they, as you're right, I think they haven't done pro stuff, a lot of pro stuff. For instance, I'm still waiting eagerly for the next generation 15 or 16 inch MacBook Pro, which I need desperately. Um, I think there'll be a next generation Mac Mini because I think that there were a lot of I don't say a lot of complaints. There were some 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 itchings from some of the pro side on some of the limitations. For instance, on the the Mac Mini, you can only put into sixteen gig of RAM, which is I've got thirty two on on my desktop. Why would I want to limit myself to sixteen gigabyte? Um, I, obviously, you'll see. I think the next generation OS, either a new g- version of Big Sur or something along that line, iOS 15. The other thing I think that I don't know that I'm hoping for, but I'm guessing that they're going to do just based upon what they do with the iPad Pro, is I think Lightning is might be finally going away. Then I think that along with the 120 hertz screen that we're supposed to be seeing on the next version of the iPhone, the iPhone 13 or whatever they're going to call it, maybe they'll skip 13 and go right to 14, um, like in an elevator. Um, but uh, I think I'm sort of half hoping that Apple moves completely to C, uh, USB-C, on the next generation. Now, whether or not they will announce such a thing at WWDC or whether or not that will wait for the new iPhone or whether or not they add it only to the pro side and keep the lightning jack on the, on the lower end model. I don't know, but I think we are slowly, but surely creeping up to USB-C becoming a universal standard everywhere. Yep. Yeah. Rob, Rob. I, I hope you're right with that. Cause I hate the lightning cable. The, the fact I Every other portable device I own recharges via USB-C. And, and now I'm thinking that Apple might actually make this move. Why? Because I just bought a couple of stupid lightning cables. <laughs> the way, don't buy it from Apple. Anchor makes, A-N-K-E-R, makes a, a much sturdier lightning cable that does not fray if you look at it the wrong way and is a little cheaper than Apple's. Uh, right. But... Honestly, I don't expect to see any news about that at uh, Dub Dub, as Apple regulars refer to WWDC. I think pro hardware like a Mac Mini, uh, a MacBook Pro laptop, maybe a higher-end iMac. Uh, at some point, they got to replace the Mac Pro, but maybe they need to redesign the $5,000 set of wheels that <laughs> come with the old one first. <laughs> well, you know, it's, you know, it's interesting. Um, 
you know, the, fixing some of those limitations that, that Stuart talked about. And I, I know this because I've had, I've had the new Mac mini, the M1 version for about uh, six months. My chief gripe is not so much the memory because the Apple people would tell you, by the way, the, the M1 has a unique memory architecture that allows you to overcome the 16 gigabit uh, limitation that, I, hey, our systems don't need 32 or 64 gigabytes of memory because it's much more efficient. The jury's a bit out on that, so but that's the Apple spin on that. But the big issue is the limitation on ports, you know, and that's been the the, the, the big frustration. You only have two USB C ports, right? Uh, um, Thunderbolt, right. I should say. They'll probably address that because, you know, I'm looking at my Mac Mini right now. It's like an octopus. I've got all kinds of dongles and cables <laughs> off of it, and um, I do think that they're going to have to address the uh, uh, the uh, professional market, both at the uh, both at the iMac level and at the um, and at the Mac Mini level, because there is an audience that just wants to buy a um, a standalone desktop, and uh, and that's that's been their solution. But it will be interesting to see. There's always full of surprises. So, guys, listen. Thank you for your time, uh, as always. Um, hopefully, the next time I talk to you, Stuart, the Yankees will be on a on a on a, on a winning streak. Yeah, hope springs eternal. <laughs> But uh, everybody, thanks for uh, uh, to the uh, more insights and strategy audience. Thanks for taking the time to join me for today's podcast. For our viewing and listening audience, please subscribe to the Smart Tech Check podcast on YouTube and Apple Podcasts, and follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And until next time, have a great week. <laughs>